when you're looking at fighting the left, stopping it, slowing it down made sense then. Now that we've lost so much of our turf, yeah. getting rid of this defensive mindset and actually going on offense, being a counter-revolutionary and trying to take back the culture is the com- is obviously the thing we need to do, but it's almost impossible to get Republican elected officials and leaders to like talk in the language of offense instead of defense. They're mm-hmm. still stuck in this language from, you know, Goldwater through Reagan, this defensive language of, you know, we just got to stop the left. No, you don't want to stop left. We need to beat them and defeat them because they've right. already won. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And boy, do we have a great episode for you guys today. You know, it's funny. I, I somehow accidentally went back and listened to the first episode uh, of Moment of Truth. And accidentally. We, well, no, it was like I accidentally hit the trailer in like the podcast uh, page uh, for the podcast. And we have been doing that intro the exact same way since the first episode it's the exact same words the same intonation and like (laughs) um coo yeah it's 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 very strange and uncanny um but listening to that first episode also makes me want to pull my teeth out because boy we sucked at it back then yeah (laughs) Um, uh, we've gotten better and many of you still listened anyway yeah i know it's amazing we we had like (laughs) a thousand listeners baked in from day one because you people for some reason care what we have to say anyway we've got a great guest for you guys today as always um we had on anthony sabatini who's a member of the florida house of representatives um, and uh, can is gonna you know answer the Florida question for us. Tell us about should uh, it the, exist? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, should we detonate thermonuclear <laughs> bombs in the thinnest parts that it floats off into the sea? No, we shouldn't. Florida's great. We should um, do that to California. Though. No, we should not do that. Stop then posting on the <laughs> podcast. Um, uh, it was a great episode. Um, but before I uh, get to Anthony's introduction, uh, as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org/slash/join. Um, there's a ton of uh, great stuff on there. You can also um, as of right now, uh, be reaching out to us. Um, Nick, how can people sign up for AM Fridays if they'd like to? Uh, they can email info at AmericanMoment.org, which goes to my inbox. Yeah. So. And so if you do that, we're doing this thing this summer where we basically rented out the entire top floor of a restaurant for every Friday lunch for 10 weeks. Uh, and what we're going to do is if you're an intern in Washington and you uh, want to get more involved with us, we're going to ha- have free lunch um, every Friday afternoon uh, and bring in a really cool speaker for 10 weeks. And so if you'd like to be part of that program, if you're a more senior staffer and you want to send your interns to that program, reach out to us. Um, uh, it's it's going to be a ton of fun. It's an expansion version of a beta program we did uh, over the spring and, and we want to keep growing it and so if you're an intern in town and that's going to be the way for us to you know give back to you for getting involved and and also um get, have you guys get to know each other better and introduce you to some really cool speakers so and let me just reiterate free lunch and it's like good food it's um, good food be there <laughs> yeah it'll be a good time so so reach out email info at americanmoment.org to find out more about that in general just uh, troll around americanmoment.org and, and find all the weird and wonderful stuff we're doing including all the backlog of this podcast for i think what, like 60 episodes now jeez uh, like over 75 hours of content it's crazy um uh, you can listen to the backlog of the up from chaos conference which i feel like there's been like three response conferences to at this point it's really cute uh, everyone's a realist now i guess <laughs> Yeah. It's uh, very exciting. Everyone loves John Quincy Adams. That's now. right. Everyone. It's in vogue. <laughs> uh, but this week we have on Anthony Sabatini, who's a member of the Florida House of Representatives. He's also running for Congress. He's uh, probably one of the most right wing members of the Florida House has been really pushing the envelope there. Um, 
And in some ways, you know, he loves Governor Ron DeSantis and, and, and has given us the skinny on why he's just as good as his federal reputation has. But he also pushes Ron DeSantis to be better by, by saying we can do more. And so it's, uh, it was really exciting to have on Anthony. He's also running for Congress, as I mentioned. Um, he's had five of his bills, uh, signed into law by, by Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, including, uh, things like constitutional carry. Um, and, but he's, uh, also pushing for free future reforms like E-Verify and other things. He, uh, is an attorney by training, although I don't think he's actually practiced law a day in his life. Um, uh, but, uh, he, uh, has uh, received his BA and JD from the University of Florida, and he also serves in the Florida Army National Guard. Uh, he's a fantastic guy. I mean, we just had a wonderful time. He's a buddy of ours, uh, shooting the breeze. As always, uh, we're a 501c3 organization, so having Anthony on as a guest should not be seen as an endorsement of or a disendorsement of his candidacy. Uh, we had him on for educational purposes to tell us more about the wonderful state of Florida. But uh, if you're trying to get the the inside scoop on how exactly all this Disney stuff is going down, he has uh, a, a really great explanation in this episode. Um, on on how that went down and what more needs to be done to to really make the mouse bleed uh, to really make the mouse cry that's the plan and so uh i had a great time talking to anthony what do you think about it nick uh well i think that anthony is one of the most real i used to work you know one of the first jobs i had uh was in the state legislature in minnesota um and man there was not a more a bigger group of like fake do nothing people and so it's really you know refreshing to 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 be with anthony and to hang out with someone who's actually a true believer on this stuff and who actually does something um you know uh, i think that's something that's going to be very alien uh, to people in dc who are meeting um anthony for the first time but it was a it was a fantastic episode um lots of disney bashing it was great yeah, we had a wonderful time. So we'll go now to Anthony Sabatini, a representative from, I think it's Western Orlando is technically where his district is. And uh, we hope you enjoy it. Anthony, thank you for coming on the podcast. Hey, it's awesome to be here. Appreciate you guys. Um, uh, you are, I think, maybe our fourth or fifth elected official, um, only our second state representative. We had on Delegate Riley Keaton a few uh, months ago, but we're really excited to have you. We've known you for, for some time now. Uh, why don't you start by telling our audience just a little bit about yourself, how you got to the point where you are today? What's your story? How did you get involved in politics? Uh, so it's kind of interesting. I was not uh, super political when I was younger in high school and college, but uh, basically what happened is um, right when I got out of college, I moved up to New York City for a job and living in New York City and being around radical leftism, like once you're entrenched in the environment of radical leftism, it sort of activated me. It was like being a fish out of water was what actually made me more interested in politics. I actually moved to New York City the week that Bill de Blasio got elected mayor, like literally that week. It was November 2013. They had so right at the beginning of the decline. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. So at that point, you know, being around uh, a lot of leftists, right? I used to call them liberals. I didn't realize it was like something very different from normal liberalism. It was like something 10, degree, you know, 10 degrees worse made me really interested in politics. I joined the Republican Party, started going to the young Republicans in New York and uh, got pretty involved. And then when I decided to law school the next year, I moved back to Florida and uh, started running for office right after that. But it all started being in a just a really radical leftist environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, uh, you know, the kind of nasty feeling, cultural feeling you get from leftists mm -hmm. when you're surrounded by them. So, And where in Florida were you from? So I grew up in a town called Mount Dora and then later Eustace. It's two towns just outside of Orlando. It's about 35 minutes west of Orlando. Mm -hmm. Just a typical, iconic, small American Florida, Florida type town. And uh, went to University of Florida for college and uh, uh, joined the Army National Guard when I was there and 
double major in history and philosophy because I wanted relevant degrees <laughs> for thinking. Yeah. And then, uh, and then uh, did some ROTC time, then moved to New York, was active duty National Guard officer there for a year and a half, almost two years, and then came back to Florida for law school at UF. That's incredible. So uh, what was it like to make that first decision to run for state rep? Was state rep the first office that you ever ran for? No, it was city commission. It's okay. an interesting story. So I was a 1L my first year of law school. And I was interning that summer for a judge who's now on the Florida Supreme Court. His name is Alan Lawson. He's one of our, mo our most conservative judges. And I wanted to clerk and do the legal thing, but I was so obsessed with politics. Uh, and Donald Trump was running that summer. This is summer 2016, early summer. Obviously, he was running before that, but this is when things were really hot and heavy in the election. And I said, I just, I got to run for something like now. And uh, in my hometown of Eustace, there was an opening on the city commission. So I got on the city commission that fall and I won. And uh, it was quite interesting because, you know, I was one of those typical guys that thought, well, everybody's Republican, so they all must be very conservative. All the city commissioners were Republican. But all these fights were arising, even at the local government level, and they would shy away from them. And I embraced them. And so it kind of made me well known. Uh, the biggest one being the Confederate monument controversy at the time. I said, we need to protect them and speak up for their uh, status in American society. Nobody else did. Kind of made me more well known in the area, and so when I ran for state house rep the next year, uh, I won overwhelmingly. So yeah, that's incredible. Uh, what what were some of the other big fights at, at that hyper local level? Because I'm pretty familiar back in my days being involved in uh, Texas state politics and local politics. That you know there there's a thousand cuts that the establishment does mm -hmm. every single day to uh, uh, basically screw regular citizens. Um, what else were the, the flashpoints? So I would say the top three or four of these. So and, and, and you're right, there's and there's a misconception about local government. It's like, well, it's boring. It's like, you know, taking the trash out and keeping the streets clean and then this and that. It's very like perfunctory stuff. Mm. Not really. All, all the big fights at the federal and state level leak into local government, too. And if you don't have people on these cities and school boards, we're going to lose as conservatives, as America first, like, people with the right principles at the local government level and get wiped out if we don't have good people in those positions. So the first thing that actually happened um, was interesting. It, there was an atheist group, uh, a dogmatically atheist group called the Central Florida Free Thought Alliance. It was what I called. Uh, <laughs> I called them at the first meeting they came to an anti-Christian hate group. Uh, you know, the Republicans on the city commission were like, well, let's appease them. Let's let them do this. What they wanted to do was a what they called a godless invocation so they could go up and do a prayer, but not mention God. It was like science-based prayer or whatever and it was it was a way to taunt people and then and then just kind of mess with um cities that were still allowing devotion and religious prayer before meetings and i said this is just wrong we can't have a godless prayer at our city commission meeting with no real prayer so as a young budding law student i was in law school while i was on the city commission i found out that you could just do unlimited prayer so they did their godless one and i gave a traditional christian prayer and they went nuts and it was this stand down between them saying well we're going to sue you for overriding our prayer. But I, I highlight it because it was important. To people, well, that sounds like just whatever. Is that a real fight or whatever? The truth, this is how the left wins. They just taunt us and make things uncomfortable for us to stand by our principles. And if you stand up and fight and go on offense, you know, we could win. So we did that. We kept our traditional prayer, whereas other cities were trying to delete uh, references to prayer. This is right after a famous Supreme Court uh, decision. Um, I think it was out of Texas, actually, where the Supreme Court and five the four decision upheld uh, prayer before local government meetings. So that was the big one. The next one was a Second Amendment issue. There was a local gun owner who wanted to sell firearms at the local town square at our city festival. And the city commission said, well, you know, I don't know if we should allow that because guns are controversial, et cetera. He was at a lot of AR-15s on display. 
And, uh, you know, I threatened to sue my own city. I was on the city commission. I said, I will sue you personally uh, if you don't allow him to have a gun permit. I actually found a statute that he they had violated by even making his uh, gun permit uh, contingent upon whether they could, you know, make they could. The fact that they even tried to deny it was they broke the law. Mm -hmm. So we won that on 4th of July. He displayed his guns. And then the third big fight was this Confederate monument uh, fight. Mm -hmm. And so all of these sort of uh, issues about just our basic values, common sense stuff that the left was trying to stand us down on in a small Republican town uh, kind of helped me uh, sharpen my teeth and get ready to run for a higher office. I think this is something really interesting about like normal boomer mindset conservatism uh is that you know it's 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 always kind of been about appeasement mm -hmm. yes, <laughs> about yes, about like all right how can we make them happy kind of keep everyone on the same page and 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 push this issue to a later date uh do you get the sense that that these people you know you're mentioning 2016 2017 a lot of this stuff going on um do you think they've woken up yet do you think they understand that this is a I fight think, for our I lives? I think we're heading in the right direction. I think, that, you know, the amount of people that are waking up every day is faster than it was in the last tw 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years. But I don't know if it's fast enough. My, my goal is to try to uh, wake people up more, right? As an elected yeah. official, I'm pushing policy. I'm trying to get some good things passed. I've had some bills passed in the law that I'm proud of. But the truth of the matter is I think the pulpit and the rhetoric and trying to wake people up is more important. Uh, uh, a leader once famously said, you know, you can be as a leader, you can be a thermometer or you can be a thermostat. Mm. Uh, we'll see who it is because not a conservative, <laughs> but the thermometer reflects the opinion in the room and tries to, you know, lead to where people want already, like try to meet their present desires. The thermostat tries to change the temperature and lead people mm. in the right direction. So our goal as elected officials needs to be like wake people up and lead them in the right way. But no, I don't I don't think it's we're there yet. I think it's happening. Yeah. And I will say historically, the appeasement mentality probably made sense like 50 years ago. I liked where most of American uh, society was in the mid 20th century. Not all of it, but a yeah. lot of it. There was a lot of good in society, not all, but there was a lot that was good. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at fighting the left, stopping it, slowing it down made sense then. Now that we've lost so much of our turf, yeah. Getting rid of this defensive mindset and actually going on offense, being a counter-revolutionary and trying to take back the culture is the is obviously the thing we need to do, but it's almost impossible to get Republican elected officials and leaders to like talk in the language of offense instead of defense. They're mm -hmm. still stuck in this language from, you know, Goldwater through Reagan, this defensive language of, you know, we just got to stop the left. No, you don't want to stop left. We need to beat them and defeat them because they've right. already won mm -hmm. yeah. in so many ways. And, um, you know, this is, I think, one of the most important things for elected officials to do. So from all these successes, you know, kind of on a, on a city, local level, what were some of the things that you decided to take on immediately once you got to the state legislature? So that summer or that that winter, I decided I was running for state house because there was just these terrible rhinos uh, running. There were terror. That's just typical kind of. So was it open seat? Bland, it was open seat. We had term mm -hmm. limits in the state legislature in Florida. So there was open seat and the people running were awful. And what triggered me actually was this, uh, the front runner in the race. And this is a totally local issue, but it really irked me was the front runner said, uh, well, I'm OK with red light cameras being popular in the state of Florida. Let the local governments make that decision. Of course, no. my heart for liberty and, and you know, small government knew that red light ta cameras are just this giant taxpayer uh, fraud scheme. And that's what they are. And so I decided to get in the race and we beat him pretty decisively, got in. And uh, the first first uh, bill I filed was campus carry, just a classic gun bill saying that college campuses, you should be able to 
uh, defend yourself. As a National Guardsman at UF, as an undergrad, I couldn't even carry a firearm. So that was an important bill to me. And I've followed a bunch of bills uh, mm -hmm. uh, that are important to me I can talk about, but that was the first one because it was so immediate and I had made a campaign promise to do it right when I got there. What was the atmosphere like when you got to the state legislature? Because given your reputation at the local level, I'm sure that the state house leaders were like, oh, we don't know about the Sabatini guy. What were the kind of little cultural corruptions that you felt in the room the second you got there? So even on the campaign trail, um, the establishment sort of uh, traditional Tallahassee, every state capital has a strong political establishment, was working kind of indirectly against me because they knew as soon as you Googled me, it was like this guy stands up for uh, AR-15 sales in, in the town square, uh, 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 suing atheists and uh, uh, preserving Confederate history. So they did not want me, right? Like their idea of conservatism was, well, we want to cut Disney's taxes more next year. That was what they were looking for. And we want to add five more kids to school choice, you know, like just very modest sort of conservative reform. So they were working against me already. Right when I got there, I told them, I used the same slogan actually DeSantis used uh, when he was running. We got elected at the same time, which was the drain the swamp in Tallahassee. He doesn't use as much anymore, but that was his slogan, mm -hmm. uh, early slogan. And uh, so they, they were working against me. Right when I got there, I was filing, I think, some of the most important concerted legislation. And uh, they weren't too happy about it. But it was an interesting time. I've done four years in the state legislature. The first two years, we had a real strong state uh, uh, house leader. His name was Jose Oliva. If you know Oliva Cigars, he's the guy that owned the brand. He started mm -hmm. it. Uh, entrepreneur, Cuban-American, very right-wing, good, strong, conservative, and we get along great. And uh, he was able to actually get some of my stuff passed, and we pushed a lot of good stuff through, and uh, he was great to work with. But the he was an exception to the rule. The The traditional Republican establishment in, in most state capitals does not want bold conservative reform. They don't want uh, uh, the things that animate the Republican Party today to get hearings and committees, and so a lot of the stuff didn't get the move. Yeah. Um, what what is the effect that term limits have had? What are the term limits? How many terms can a Florida state house member serve? And uh, what what does it feel like, you know, comparing maybe to friends that you have in other state legislatures? How does that make the experience of governing in Florida qualitatively different? So um, I think about it a lot. I'm a huge term limits fan. I'm a big advocate of them. I know they do create some issues, but I believe that the issues they create are are uh, um much smaller, more manageable than th some of the things that they help create, uh, fix. The beauty of term limits is you're always getting fresh new people in who are, I, I think, more in touch with where where our party is today and where um, the threats are today in American society. Um, but what it does do is create a rigid hierarchy within the state legislature where um, people are only there for a short period of time and they have to try to learn their job very quickly and they're afraid of failure. So they kind of defer to the leadership, the people who are more experienced in that eight-year spectrum. It's eight-year term limits, by the okay. way. So, so people, four terms. Four terms. That's it. Four two-year terms. So the people in the senior and junior classes, they end up having a lot more power mm -hmm. and uh, they control a lot more of what's going on. So that's an issue. And I wish more people would be more bold, but I think that's a manageable issue. You mm -hmm. just have to get stronger people elected in these primaries, which mm -hmm. I don't think is that hard to do, actually. Um, and uh, that would solve the issue of the, that hierarchy. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, four I mean, the, the interesting thing about that is that any member, when they're elected, they they can see the path to becoming part of that mm -hmm. leadership class. How many how many state reps are there? So in Florida, we have 120 state reps okay. and 40 uh, state senators. Yeah. So what 120? I mean, you presumably there's about a quarter churn every time, and mm -hmm. you can sort of see yourself fairly rapidly being able to be part of, I guess, the 30 that are the senior mm -hmm. class within 
with an with an eye shot. Um, and uh, but I'm sure that that also has some corrupting consequences because every person sees the path to becoming a part of leadership and getting all the perks associated with that. And so they have to uh, resist that urge yes. uh, to to sell out. Um, what did those pressures concretely feel like when you, when you got there? I mean, it seems like the Florida establishment kind of knew they weren't going to be able to co-opt you, but I'm sure colleagues felt it well, and other people did I, too. I had a unique perspective on it from the very get-go, uh, having watched a lot of what was going on in Congress and in Congress and state legislatures are more similar than I think some people would probably assume. Uh, they're very they're very similar. Um, I was never tempted to try to um, abdicate my principles or belief or tone myself down to try to climb to some nominal position. And the reason for that is is because I, I and I talk about this a lot. It's I think there's a fundamental division between people who want to try to exercise power and people who want the perception of power. And real power uh, it's almost like the thermostat metaphor is about actually going out and fighting and changing opinion and actually getting people to have to think or react differently. The perception of power might look like your power, but you're generally, a lot of these folks who are in various pockets of the legislature and different departments, everything else, aren't, they're not actually exercising power independently or doing anything independently. They're just having power exercised through them. So if you're the subcommittee chair of transportation, blah, 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 it might look like you're calling all the shots. You have the placard, you got the lapel pin, you're doing all this. But the truth is the speaker of the house or whoever's in the political structure is just telling you in most cases exactly what to do. So even though you're this vessel exercising the power, you're not really, it's not real power, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's just the, it's the image of power. And it's an important metaphor, I think, for the younger members to understand. Like, if you want to be real power, like powerful, they'll tell you, "Oh, well, you got to, you got to toe the line." Well, actually, you're giving up your power by towing the line. You're ab- you're giving your power to people who are exercising it through you, and you just have gained the perception of power. And um, I kind of understood this immediately, and so I have no interest in in changing my 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 votes or my rhetoric to try to achieve some nominal position. And the truth of the matter is, in these state legislatures, and the Congress is true too. The speaker really controls almost all of it. There's a few people with all the power, and then there's people jockeying over each other, submitting the power that they have, the sacred trust, the people and the power that they've been given to try to be vessels that in which power is exercised through. Why? Just to get that perception of power. Yeah, that's 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 very interesting. And I, I, I suppose none of this conversation can happen without the context of the particular time you got elected and um, and, and who was also elected at the same time, which <laughs> was um, Governor Ron DeSantis. And, you know, in our conversations over the last few years, um, uh, the, one of the first questions I always ask you is because because of my experience in Texas, where um, our governor in Texas was very good at seeming like he was this great right wing champion <laughs> at the federal level. But in reality, uh, to the extent he ever did anything good, it was because he was pushed. Yes. And more often than not, he was was stymieing conservative reform. And so um, I think it's pretty clear, and you and I would both agree, Ron DeSantis is the best governor in America, and yes. it's not close. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's a 100 out of 100. I mean, mm-hmm. and 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 you you criticize good people so that they can be great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tell me a little bit about what your perception of DeSantis's governorship has been from the beginning to this point, and what were the fights that that he decided to pick? How do they relate to the fights that you've decided to pick? And mm-hmm. and you know, paint paint a history. Sure. So I think the best way to tell you know to understand DeSantis is the fact that he was a Freedom Caucus member. It's very rare that a member of the Freedom Caucus, a really principled, constitutional, conservative, you know, independent-minded guy in the Congress, gets elected to the governor of a state, much less the third biggest state in the country. I mean, he was mm-hmm. coming into his governorship. He's the most principled, one of the most strongest America, uh, you know, patriotic uh, Republican Congress that we have. Period. So. 
He gets there and it was just shocking. Remember, he had to beat the political establishment. I was a day one DeSantis guy from day one. Why? Because he was my congressman and because I knew that he was just a real fighter in Washington, D.C. against the swamp. Uh, the guy who was running against the guy was a guy named Adam Putnam. He's a lot like, uh, you know, your typical governor, super safe, uh, follow the crowd, not trying to actually do anything bold or risky, but really just try to appease wherever the electorate is so he can exercise power in some other way, personal gain, whatever it be. And so when DeSantis beat him through mostly through Trump's endorsement, it shocked everybody. Nobody knew what to expect. And uh, I was very happy from day one. And so um, I've been less surprised by the bold, amazing conservative reform that he's pushed through than most people, because I knew that if you get a guy from the Freedom Caucus elected governor, they're going to do some pretty cool stuff. So, um, you know, obviously his biggest early fight, the most important early fight, he did some really good things. We banned sanctuary cities really early on. Uh, you know, we we uh, did some really good things when it came to uh, law and order in Florida. I mean, some good stuff on taxes, school choice. But the first really big fight where he took a, a major risk and stood up for freedom was COVID. And, uh, you know, me and DeSantis, I will say, were the only elected officials in the state of Florida who were speaking up uh, against what was going on in terms of the federal regime and ideas around COVID. Uh, Fauci and the CDC and the lockdowns, everything else. It was just the governor and, and me. And of course, I'm in the legislature, not in leadership. So I wasn't able to pull any kind of real political power, but I was able to basically push the narrative that this was all wrong. I mean, school, the school closures were not based on science. The lockdowns were not based on science, any of it. So that was his first big fight was pushing back against the narrative. And then, of course, uh, ending the lockdown rather quickly, uh, being more pro-business and then fighting against the federal mandates uh, later when it came to the vaccine and everything else. So that was his first big major victory that I think uh, made him the best governor in the country and uh to this day, really has crafted his national mm -hmm. appeal. So I think one thing that's so um, enthralling, I guess, about his governorship is that he he actually knows how to wield power. <laughs> I mean, we have, um, what, 20 something Republican governors across the country. And as Sarab has said, you know, uh, DeSantis has kind of stood head and shoulders above the rest on mm -hmm. not just COVID, but on law and order on a lot of this um, trans ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think it is about, uh, you know, his strategy or maybe the political makeup of Florida that that makes all those actions possible? Yeah. Well, let me just kind of double tap first in answering the question that everything that's good in Florida that's happening is exclusively because of Governor DeSantis. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm in the legislature pushing and fighting and, and putting a, a light on it and, 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 you know, sort of being almost an activist for these conservative reforms that he's pushing. But at the end of the day, it's coming totally from the governor's office. The legislature is no different from the Congress. You got a lot of rhinos. You got some conservatives and a lot of people in the middle who are just waiting to be told what to do. So the governor's really drawing. I mean, he's really he owns all of all of he sort of owns all of the good important conservative mm -hmm. reform in the state of Florida. The first thing was COVID. The trans uh, uh, agenda, fighting the trans agenda, with, started with women's sports, and then uh, this is the year that we'll, we'll ban the uh, dangerous uh, surgeries on trans youth in the state of Florida. It's all coming from him. Why is he doing it? What? You know, obviously, first of all, I would say yes, he is very principled, and he's a liberty guy, and he loves the fact that you know he loves fighting against these insane ideas. But secondly, because He's young and ambitious. I mean, let's just be completely and totally honest. Like he wants to be the president and he sees what animates, he sees what the threats are in the country. And he sees what animates our people. And he's trying to respond to that. 
a lot of these Republicans in the governorships, I think it's like 26 governorships Republican in the country right now, they're not animated by these things because they're already in power. And so, uh, and let's be honest, a lot of the reason they're running for governor isn't to try to achieve some important conservative reform. It's just for the personal illusory effect of power or uh, prestige. You know, they're, they're not looking to try to do anything above and beyond be, be governor. <laughs> it's just sort of like keep things stable, go with the flow, and then and then that be and that be it. So they, they're not animated by the same in, uh, principles or ambition that that animate Governor DeSantis, and he doesn't really have a close second. Sometimes Abbott will do something that indicates that he wants. He's got some ambition and wants to be the president, but that's it. And he falls way by the way, by the way, way by the wayside of DeSantis. But there's really not even a close three. I mean, I like what the Oklahoma governor's doing. There's a few governors that will throw things out that are really good, but most of them aren't, aren't trying to ri- rise to the occasion like Governor DeSantis is. Well, and a lot of it too, I think, has been very performative. I think that people talking about what other governors have been doing, they've been trying to copy him, right? Yeah, um, and and so try to copy some of the rhetoric and do some things. So like the uh, when Governor Abbott sent all the illegal immigrants up here to to DC or whatever and let them off over by over by Union Station, there are a ton of practical things you could be you could be doing on immigration, but just not. Um, so what do you think? You know, as I mean, you. You've said it yourself that, uh, you know, DeSantis wants to, uh, you know, run for president. But I I really think there is something important to be said about how do you um, manage and, and, and run a red state when you have power? How do you utilize it to create a great place to live for people who have grown up there? What do you think is the path for, for governors who don't want to run for president, uh, but but do want to replicate a lot of the success that mm-hmm. that Florida has had. What do you think they can be doing? I think there's a few things. First, I want to respond to one quick thing you you brought up. I think it's really important to like where we are <laughs> in the country today, and when it comes to like trying to get real conservative wins and uh, you know wins across the finish line. And it's this it's this dangerous thing that a lot of Republicans do, which is called you know window dressing. They mm-hmm. want to look like they're addressing an issue, do, do something in response to an issue, but not actually do anything. So like sending illegal immigrants to D.C. is sort of window dressing. It, it, it gives this perception that we're responding to this illegal immigration crisis. We're getting rid of these guys. We're reacting. Uh, we're being strong. But the truth of the matter is they're not doing anything. There's no tangible result that got us or the country in a better position on the issue of illegal immigration <laughs> than them not having done it at all. So this, but this is a this is what they do on so many different issues. Window dressing is the number one go to thing for Republicans. Like try to look like we're addressing an issue. Uh, send out a, a fundraising email on it. You see these guys do it all the time, but not actually do something like pass e verify, uh, which would stop illegal immigration. Right, mm-hmm. like, like turning off the faucet. Like there's no more jobs for you. Uh, the business owners are in trouble if they hire you, and these people will just be gone. Uh, that's far more dangerous to do and serious. It takes serious political courage. So you're not going to see them doing that. The bus thing is something that they're going to be more obsessed with. Um, <laughs> I had to jump into that that part, yeah. but repeat the other part of the question because that was, I think it's the most important for distinction sure. for our electorate and like people to know and to identify and to try to correct on the spot. Yeah. So how can Republican governors who are not trying yeah, to yeah. run for president authentically replicate the success that Florida has had. So one of the most important, uh, some of the most important reforms that can be done at the state level uh, to try to save the country, to save the republic, but also your own states. And some of it is replicating Florida. Some is doing some things that we still need to do. But one of them is getting to a 100% voucher school system in public education. These things like getting critical race theory out of the public school system, it's like whack-a-mole. I mean, you pass a law saying you can't talk about critical race theory. 
They're just going to change the terms. They'll find other ways to exercise that same thing. The doctrine will still leak into this fundamentally wrong system, which is this government-run, leftist-run, bureaucratic-run major component of our economy. And of course, a, a half or a third of every state budget goes straight into education. I think it's something like 40%, 30% healthcare, and the rest is uh, discretionary. We need to go to 100% uh, pre-model, not just because of this idea of like everything needs to be privatized, which I mean, privatizing is great and everything, but because you can get models of education that create conservative citizens again, if you get them out of the government schools, whether it be religious education, maybe something with some values based military education, great books, education, classical mm -hmm. models, whatever. Going 100 miles an hour towards a 100% voucher school system in the red states is the single most important thing you can do to try to create better future citizens. It's not an immediate effect to save the country, but it will work very well. And Florida loves to pat itself on the back and say we have the most school choice. But 95% of our K through 12 dollars are still going to these government schools, which are creating a certain type of citizen that just, I think, leans more in uh, a, a liberal direction. It's just just the way the model of education is built into the system. So if we can just go, I mean, I think we should have done it 10 years ago, just 100% voucher school system at the state level, every single parent gets a voucher school. Those parents are going to send them, send their kids to largely, not all, but mostly unwoke models of privatized education. I think that's the single most important form that can be done at the state level. Number two on a different topic is E-Verify. I think every state needs to pass E-Verify immediately. Also, by the way, very bipartisan. It's like 60, 70 mm percent -hmm. approval rating. Uh, get rid of the illegal immigration, stop the uh, replacement of all citizens that are here with new citizens and take care of our own people. Like focus on taking care of actual Americans and fixing the the mess that we've created in this society, um, um, you know, on, on many different levels uh, by by stopping the just constant uh, new stream of, of citizens that, let's be honest, our institutions have failed to even Americanize. Like mm -hmm. there's just people can want to be Americans and our institutions are pushing back against the immigrants that are coming already, legal or illegal. And so this is just something that needs to stop immediately and he verifies the best, fastest way to do it. It's really like building the wall, uh, but doing it like effectively. I mean, we still need to build the wall, but you verify you can do it like now yeah. um, with that. So, so those are the two, probably the two most important forms. And then third, I would say, reforming and pushing back against the broken institutions to, to 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 crush wokeism at the state level but by going on offense not i mean critical race theory baron very important we got to do it now we did it in florida it's very important it's one of the most i think it might be the single most important thing that desantis pushed through was a ban on critical race theory both in schools and in the private sector workplace we passed it two months ago but the truth is we got to go further than that we got to actually defeat and this is what republicans don't understand that you have to replace your defensive mindset and language with offensive concepts, we need to actually like drain the swamp, <laughs> to use a, to use a phrase, and and stop the sources from which this is coming from. Where is mm -hmm. it coming from? Higher education. It's time to start defunding and shutting down these radical leftist universities, and especially the department. At a minimum, the departments within them that that they're pushing this stuff mm -hmm. at university in the University of Florida, my alma mater, the um, um, uh, you know best flagship university in the state of Florida. Ibrahim Kendi first won his National Book Award and was a tenured professor at UF mm. in the history department. So like we're actually subsidizing our own destruction by paying money out of our state budget to the worst people in the country who are trying to destroy the country. So mm. so shutting down and going on offense and, and defunding these leftist institutions in your state, it's not just higher ed. It's also uh, various state agencies. It's agencies that are pushing it. Uh, you know, this the trans agenda is being moved through DCF, the Department of Children and Families in various states. Uh, some of our journalist friends have written about it. 
and some of the things that these state agencies have done sort of under the nose of Republican legislatures, defunding and reforming, those are important things. There's various different things, but I would sort of put it in three broad categories. It's E-Verify, it's 100% voucher schools, and it's going on an offensive anti-woke crusade against state institutions. It's a great agenda. On the theme of going on offense, it feels like the biggest story in any state in the country over the last few months has been the fight between DeSantis and Disney. Mm -hmm. Uh, Walk our listeners through step by step what happened there and what's it been like to be uh, in the crucible fighting that fight against one of the biggest corporations in the world. It's pretty amazing. And it's also interesting because it's like you're you're reporting from the front lines because the battle's still going on, right? Mm -hmm. We're in the middle of the battle right now. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how it's going to turn out because I'm with 100% with the governor and I like applaud Governor DeSantis. I might be, I'm more proud of his chosen that fight, both for the direct result in which it's going to bring, but also for changing the narrative on how Republicans need to be acting than than almost anything he's done. Like, I'm just extraordinarily proud, but we don't know where it's going to go because the legislature is still very, I would say, conventional. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of the old guard. And we know that at the end of the day, they still want to try to keep these strong relationships with the corporate class and with Disney and try to appease them to some degree. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, that, you know, just to kind of highlight it, I'm sure your your listeners um, are familiar with the contours of it, but I'll sort of like give a historic kind of synopsis of it. You know, we're driving up to Tallahassee to pass a bill on a separate subject. And the governor that like literally the morning of the special session said, we're going to repeal their self-governing status. And more importantly, this is like the first step. And, um, a series of reforms that we're going to do to strike back at Disney's outsized uh, influence in the state and uh, I think corrupt role in our state's politics to try to gain favor for themselves while also pushing a woke agenda. So we get there, you know, the legislature is pushing is is pushing his bill through. And I'm shocked because the Disney lobbyists, which have always done five to $10 million in, in donations to various state legislators, powerful legislators, who control some of the um, movement of bills, et cetera, um, is totally obviously opposed to it. And they're fighting both behind the scenes and sort of in front of the scenes there. I mean, I saw some of the lobbyists there. They're meeting with state legislators. A lot of people didn't think that the bill was going to pass. Um, there's only a few people who are really vocal. I would say there's only about five or six legislators that w- were speaking strongly on this topic of uh you know, disengaging from the corporate class, taking away uh, their special privileges under law and start focusing on the middle working classes of the state of Florida again and, put, and changing our tax code to try to help them instead of these elite uh, woke liberals that hate us. And uh, the governor pushed it through. But here's the important thing that uh, needs to be kept in mind. We repealed their self-governing status. But what really needs to be done is this next step, which I think the governor is reserving for the legislative session this fall, which is to change our tax code to try to treat, really, to be completely honest about it, treat Disney just fairly under the tax code, Mm -hmm. which is like the worst thing that could ever happen to them, right? Because they're going to be paying way more (laughs) taxes than they ever expected or wanted to pay, Mm -hmm. Um, like $600 million more. I mean, Congressman Gates wrote an op-ed saying, if we close what they call the... um, uh, combined uh, tax loophole where you can lie and say that you're making money in Delaware or Nevada or whatever and basically have like safe havens within the country and say that you're not making the money in Florida, you could pay a, ta- a state less tax. Texas uh, uh, closed the loophole. Florida still needs to do it. That could be the single most important reform that needs to be done to really punch these insane world companies in the face. And Governor DeSantis, I think, will uh, 
will get there if the legislature is pushing it also with him mm -hmm. because he's doing all the heavy lifting himself. But I would say that's the most important next step next step that needs to, ha to happen in this fight against Disney. Do you feel like the temperature has changed with the way that other corporations have been acting lately? Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's that been like? Practically, what have you seen? Because it feels like everyone's scared because DeSantis <laughs> made the mouse bleed. And so, you know, who, yeah, who knows they, who could be next? They freaked out big time. I mean, they went they kind of went nuts. They went radio silent. They, they fired their comms director. I'm not sure if you saw that story. Their PR guy at a big Disney corporate in California. And he's gone. Uh, and so they're just sort of waiting in the grass and their goal, their goal is to try to build relationships with the legislature or maybe even repair the relationship with the governor to try to get back to where they were. I, I'm, I'm here to say that like no Republican should even be open to the idea mm -hmm. of giving any special privileges to Disney or any of these other companies anymore. Our goal at the end of the day needs to be to rid that corporate relation, you know, that globalist corporate relationship to the Republican Party and change our tax codes and our regulations so that we're privileging like our actual voters, our actual friends, our actual people in the state of Florida. That needs to be the ultimate goal. But Disney's already working to repair it. These other companies are watching very, um, very uh, closely. The other big theme parks in the state of Florida, like uh, SeaWorld or Universal Studios, which are literally right next door to Disney, mm -hmm. have been radio silent on the topic the entire time because they don't want to lose their privileges. They have special tax privileges. Yeah, they don't have the self-governing status that Reedy Creek aka Disney had, but they do have these like various like job, uh, job creation, tax incentives and grants, other types of handouts mm -hmm. from the corporate class of the Republican Party that also need to be ridden. And they don't want to lose those. So they've been mm -hmm. very quiet. Um, but I would tell you, I don't care if they're quiet or loud. Mm -hmm. We need to get rid of those and we need to just start doing the right thing in the Republican Party and, and, and respond to what our voters want. Our voters don't want these corporations to have all these things. I mean, I get some people have been duped into thinking that these these various handouts and tax incentives benefited Florida in some way. The truth mm -hmm. is it was always a lie. It's a special treatment under our laws and uh, and they never deserved it to begin with. That was the irony of the whole thing was everyone said, well, are you doing this right now because of their response to wokeism? Well, yes, to a certain degree, but at the same time, they should have never had these special privileges. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, Disney doing like five to $10 million to like various state legislatures. Yeah. I want to or state legislators, I want to dive in a little bit into the hold that that Disney has over the state of Florida, mm -hmm. over, you know, its government. How did that all like come into existence pre, you know, pre this whole controversy? I mean, what what was the level of power they had prior to this? Enormous power. Uh, Gates always used to call a rodent problem. You got a rodent problem because the, <laughs> because the mouse, the mouse is against what you're trying to do. They yeah. called it the rodent problem. Whether it, be, it could be a gun law that you were pushing a pro 2A gun law. And Disney says, oh, we don't like the way that the perception of that law. And they would start fighting against it. They had 20, 20 or 30 lobbyists in Tallahassee and they would start killing bills at the federal or state level, whatever it is they didn't like that affected Florida. Um, this was enormous influence. It came from the fact that they were the biggest single site employer in Florida, 80,000 employees. I have five to 10,000 employees, Disney employees in my district. I'm the area just west of Orlando. Mm -hmm. And their influence was always there. I will tell you, now I'm saying this to brag, but to give context, I was probably the only legislator who just didn't give a, a, a damn ever about what Disney wanted, period, like ever. Mm -hmm. I always fought against them. They never liked me. They backed my primary opponent. And I, mostly because I always knew they were a woke company. Even before they picked this new fight, which is an insane flight, it had to do with Trans, transgender education for third graders. I mean, it's mm -hmm. totally insane that that's the hill they died on. But even before this, uh, the, the the messaging and the anti-gender kind of movement that they were fighting in before that, I, I just never liked Disney as a corporate entity. Um, 
they've always had that influence. But now that the Republican Party has gone in a much, much more populist direction, not where we need to be yet, but it's moving in the right direction. You can see it. I think you can measure it. The the spirit that animates the Republican Party and even the the donations, the types of donations that people get, the fact that a guy like me who says, screw you to the you know chamber and to Disney and everything else can still raise a million dollars from 8,000 actual people, no PACs, no lobbies, but normal people, frees up spirit uh, energy in the Republican Party to do the right thing and go in the right direction. So, so yeah, Disney is still influential, but it's moving it's moving in a different direction and it's i think it's it's influence is just generally being limited you know what they sound like man a cartel (laughs) that's what it sounds like yeah yeah 30 lobbyists um or hitmen they've threatened Uh, they threaten members they're they bully members yeah they're pretty open about it some of their higher level lobbyists are really brazen they used to really go after uh, uh, people that were doing things that were disagreeable. And, and Republicans would stumble over themselves to go to these various fundraisers and events and ribbon cuttings and VIP things. I've, of course, I've never been to a single one of them. I've never taken a dime from them, but they would always uh, seek to build these relationships. And yes, they would literally control, control the Republican legislature. I mean, wow. the, for DeSantis to stand up and say no more and sever those ties and to say, I will do whatever we want and protect Florida families and be independent of Disney's influence, mm-hmm shocked shocked central floridians all floridians but especially central floridians who've always lived in in the shadow in the in the area around disney uh it it just shocked them to the core they've never seen anything like it an enormous act of political courage from governor DeSantis. i'm sure that disney has been trying to weaponize the fact that they have all these employees in the in the districts um uh around that area um to prevent this regulation a what have those threats been like i'm sure they're saying that you know these jobs will go away and and then what do those employees say to you because you're fighting on this issue? So it's interesting. Um, 80,000 employees, right? So and you basically have kind of three groups. You have some that are radical left employees. It's actually a small group, much smaller than you would expect. Uh, some uh, The largest group is being not, totally It's apolitical. not a corporate headquarters. It's no, the yeah, parks. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah. like working class That's people it. who like service industry. Tourism, like, hospitality, yeah. normal, you know, working people. The largest group of their employees is just totally apolitical. They don't care about this stuff. And when they see that Disney's picking a fight with the state because they want a second grader to get a mandatory lesson on transgender sex mm-hmm. and identity, it, it freaks them out. Okay, so yeah. so they're with us. And then, of course, there, there's a lot of conservatives that work at Disney. Um, because why? It's a company that for a long time prized family and childhood and the sanctity of childhood and imagination and the innocence of childhood. Like it's a, it was at one point a family company. So you have conservatives, you have apolitical people who are with us. Super majority, a super majority of the feedback I've gotten from the Disney employees are with us. They're shocked to know this, uh, to, to know that Disney chose this fight and they're freaked out by it. Um, and so, yeah, they're with us. They, 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 they're just trying to get this thing past them. They want to go back to normal and they're just freaked out by what Disney's done. And some of them have quit. Some of mm-hmm. them have quit. I've had a lot of people uh, who work there quit and say that they, they can't work there anymore. And I've had a lot of people say, I never worked there, but I've been a, a season pass holder, whatever, for years and years and years. And we just cancel our memberships with Disney and wow. any affiliation. So that's, that's the trajectory um, right now. I mean, the people are totally with us. Um, not that, not that that's, a, and I don't want people to cope and be like, okay, we won. No, no, no. We need to like expand the mm-hmm. original parents' rights bill to the twelfth grade. Like mm-hmm. the legislature did the the terrible thing, and I'm the truth teller that gets in trouble for like, you know, uh, 
sort of downplaying some of our conservative reforms. Like we need, I always say we need to go further. Yeah. So the bill basically protected K through third graders from these types of lessons. The truth of the matter is transgender ideology and sexual orientation lessons don't belong anywhere in a public school. Mm-hmm. It needs to be extended to the 12th grade. Mm-hmm. And so Republicans are like, look, we're winning this fight. The public's with it, yada, yada, yada. Remember that if you set your goal to be this low mm-hmm. and you reach it, it doesn't make you a winner. We need to actually go and, and protect all 12th grade. And by the way, even that's how much of it is a win. We're still playing defense. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, until all of this le- these lessons are just gone from the culture and this sick perversion is gone from the culture, we haven't won, in my opinion. Yeah. But but we need to do it next year. It needs to go to the 12th grade, 100%. So I think this this category of reforms is great. The things that, that you are taking an even more right-wing stance on than, than maybe Governor DeSantis has chosen or, or the legislature has. So it sounds like E-Verify is one of the big verticals mm-hmm. there, uh, going even further on this Disney tax loophole, um, going further on uh, what the media called the don't say gay bill, but just was the reality that we shouldn't have this demented ideology in schools. What are some other things that you're, you're pushing the envelope on? And, and look, I mean, I'm of the belief that any healthy political ecosystem has use in it like people Mm -hmm. who eh, because there's where the middle are but you need carrots and sticks on either side to actually pull people more and more in the right direction it doesn't mean you know that that everyone has to be an anthony sabatini but you Mm -hmm. need five to ten of them otherwise the legislature won't won't feel the need to move forward what are some of the other things that you think florida can and should go even further on um well i'm a freedom guy i'm a liberty guy at the end of the day you know as much as i engage in these these populist issues and these issues about culture at the end of the day i just want to see more freedom i want to see less government let people live their lives and live their lives virtuously so for me it's like getting rid of a lot of the grift and graft like in the government like this this program called visit florida which every state has a giant tourist agencies which is just doles out money to major corporate donors at every state i want to see that shut down uh, you know, I want to see more parents' rights. I want to see 100% control of education by parents and vouchers. Uh, those are really big. I want to get rid of, like I said, some of the grift. One of the most important bills that people would see as an esoteric issue or just something that might be minutiae, it's actually very, very important, is a, is a bill called banning taxpayer-funded lobbying. Mm-hmm. But taxpayer-funded lobbying is when cities, counties, school boards, various subdivisions of your state government will take the money that uh, you know they're taking from your property tax or whatever taxes you pay to local government turning around and using it to hire lobbyists to push things for like more government and more wokeism. Uh, you know, Broward County, Palm Beach County, Miami County, liberal counties will take taxpayer money that they the taxpayer think you're going to police and fire, you know, and street maintenance and actually using it to push like, you know, their human uh, relations, woke, crazy agenda at the at the state level to um, uh, to fight back against Republican legislatures mm-hmm. with your taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. So common sense reform that needs to be pushed through. Uh, that bill and a lot of the bills I've done, or I've, I've been the first guy to ever file them. And in the state legislative side, sometimes you got to file a bill years and years and years to get it done. Constitutional carry is another important one. I was the first legislator ever to file constitutional carry in the history of the state of Florida three years ago. It took 13 years to pass in Texas, as you probably very well know. Mm -hmm. Um, In three years, we got it from being an esoteric kind of idea. And like, that's crazy, too. Now the governor's saying, put it on my desk and we're going to sign it tomorrow. And just pushing that reform over and over is what's got it through. But those are two bills that aren't part of like the hot set of issues that I think animate the party right now that are really, but still really, really important bills. And constitutional carry is more more than just the tangible result of you know, getting rid of these permits and having uh, more robust Second Amendment protections. It's the idea of protecting essential freedom. We need mm-hmm. to protect essential freedom. You know, the Bill of Rights and essential freedoms in society, like defending yourself with a firearm, 
we need to be going to the max on, mm -hmm. I think, right now, because we're going up against uh, an enemy, the enemies of freedom in this country, which deny the existence of those mm -hmm. freedoms, are in doing everything they can to extinguish them. So we need to be fighting back as hard as we possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, the, the Second Amendment issue is often considered basically a second class right in America. Oh, yeah. You don't, you, exactly. you know, it's it's uh, the right has historically wanted to play defense on it and not actually uh, treat it the way that the left treats their sacred cows, which in their eyes, you know, the First Amendment. Yeah, it doesn't mean freedom of speech. What it means is like violent pornography everywhere in America. And so the the, the left, uh, you know, distorts rights and 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 takes them too far in terms of pushing their perversion and degeneracy, whereas the right is is supine on on the rights that 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 we really want to protect and the left is going after like the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely important. Um, I wish DC had constitutional carry. It has basically the opposite of it. It's impossible uh, to get a concealed handgun yeah. permit in, in DC. There's like less than 2,500 people that have one. Apparently. It's okay. We'll help you out once you're here. <laughs> we know a guy. We know a guy. Um, <laughs> now I know. Yeah. Um, but I, I think all of those are very true. And the taxpayer funded lobbying thing, I mean, again, I We've we've dealt with a very Huge. similar fight in, in Texas. And, um, you know, it's it's almost a, a metapolitical question. It's it's not necessarily, you know, what's on the table. It's how the table is set to begin with. Or yes. It's the shape of the table. And it's, you know, the, you think about the source of power that the left has. And one of the, the the easy weights on the scale they have in their ledger is that they get to use taxpayer dollars in order to advance their own interests. Yeah. Whereas we have to, you know, do the opposite. We There's there's not a single dollar out there that government's going to put up for uh, right wing causes. And so it's 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 an rooting easy out example. rooting out and defunding and stopping the sources of radical anti-American leftism is really important. Mm -hmm. And if you say that right, the old conventional mentality is, whoa, like, how dare you say that you're trying to extinguish like the sources of this stuff? Like, it's OK to defend ourselves and fight back, but don't actually try to beat uh, you know, and stop where this stuff is coming from. The truth of the matter is that's what we have to do. We're yeah. in a war. We're in a cultural war. Mm -hmm. It's not a metaphor. It is an absolute war. These are people that if they had the ability to do it, they would start, you know, removing parents' rights from being mm -hmm. able to raise kids that aren't raised with the right doctrine, you know, mm -hmm. locking people in their, their home anytime they think there's a health risk, managing what we say, what we think, what we wear, what we do, where we go. They want basically a managerial elite class you know, a global class that manages every decision, mm -hmm. every decision of every person. Mm -hmm. And we'll just be the serfs that just go along with it. And if mm -hmm. people don't understand that that's the stakes, that is the stakes of where we're at right now and fighting and fighting against the left, then we're going to lose every time. Yeah. You know, understand the, the field of battle. Uh, you know, you're never going to win it if you don't have a vision of the, of the field of battle to begin with. And that's where we're at right now. So in much the same way that the stuff you did at the local level was a preview into what you were going to do in the state legislature. You're running for Congress right mm -hmm. now. Um, tell us a little bit about how the themes and the things that you've uh, uh, done in the state legislature would translate into the things you would fight for were you to be elected uh, sure. at the federal level in, in the U.S. Congress. Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of times it would be the same issue, just looking at it from a different perspective or doing a different reform because why you're you're at the federal level, not the state level. So E-Verify, one of the most probably the most important way to fight back against illegal immigration at the state level. At the federal level, it's building the wall. I mean, there's different things, same topic, but there's different things. The first thing I'll do is co-sponsor a number of bills that I've already filed that are really important. I will co-sponsor Thomas Massey's bill to uh, uh, defund and shut down the Federal Department of Education. Uh, and that is just such a common sense um, reform. I can't imagine. It's just shocking to me when you look back at 2016 and 2018 that we had total control and total power on everything. And there was a consensus among all Republicans of what we needed to do. And just to see very little of it get done. 
I think that's one of the most important things. I, I, this theme of education is very important to me because it, it's about the future. It's not just about the immediate moment, but it's about the type of citizens you're creating. And if we don't shut down the federal department of education, we're just availing ourselves to the worst types of influence in society. So that's a really important reform. Uh, Paul Gosar's bill to create an immigration moratorium of at least 10 years, I think is really important. Shutting that down and, 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 and studying the issue and then really building the wall, but stopping the uh, importing of uh, immigrants, legal and illegal, into the United States is an important way to preserve our culture and to bolster a focus on helping the working class and middle class, the people who are already here. I think it's the ethical and, and right thing to do. Those are some of the probably two, two biggest reforms. Uh, I talked a lot more about the CDC and Fauci earlier in the campaign. It's kind of fading away right now, but it, we can't lose focus of it. We have to go after Fauci, investigate what he knew about the origins of COVID and how the administrative power in this country used COVID and, and the idea of COVID to um, lie to the American people, um, and and try to restructure our society and study mm -hmm. it and, and look at it. And then just, of course, drain the swamp, like stop the CDC, stop the World Health Organization from the outside's influence it had and go back to freedom. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm endorsed by Rand Paul, my race for Congress, too, is because of this focus on administrative power exercised through the CDC and uh, what they got away with. And just and the truth of the matter is he perjured himself. If we don't go after him for the perjury that he committed, like on record, we're sort of complacent in the decline of the rule of law in this country because we're sitting back and letting people destroy these norms that we had for a long period of time. Mm. And uh, we've done nothing about it. So I think he needs to be investigated for, the, you know, and, and, and prosecuted for the perjury he committed. Mm. Those are just a few of the things that are sort of on the top of my mind right now. But a commission into um, the general class of officers in the military uh, about where and when they knew about the decline and the failure, almost almost purposeful, purposeful failure in the so-called wars against terrorism mm. over the last few years is really important. Of course, I agree with my good friend Joe Kent on this issue. I think we need a commission to study it, not just to hold people accountable who, who, who are now making money as lobbyists in the defense contractor industry when it comes to this topic, but also to prevent like another war. We're now we're going into Somalia. We're probably going into Ukraine if these psychopaths uh, continue to have power in this country. And we need to know that the lessons that we failed to learn from when it came to Iraq and Afghanistan are going to be applied again. And it's time to change them. And only a commission can do that. There's various amount of commissions. Remember, we're going to have power in the Congress, not the White House over the last two years. What can we do? Investigate and hold these commissions and get knowledge to both ourselves and to the American people about what we need to do once we get executive power again. What is the what are the pressures that that are put on you now that you're running for Congress again in much the same way? I'm sure that there's people in D.C. that are like, oh, I don't know about the Sabatini guy. Mm -hmm. um, what, what 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 have been the the little ways that the establishment has tried to, to corrupt or get involved in your race and 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 do the same thing that they've that they've always done? Well, Florida having really late primaries mm -hmm. and, and always just by the nature of it, very crowded primaries, largely the establishment's just been sort of quiet and distant and disengaged in the race. Why? There's so many races. There's so many seats in play. It was like 70 seats are in play now that they're just sort of distracted with more immediate mm -hmm. uh, primaries. You got Georgia, all this stuff coming up really soon. So, so far, it's really just been sort of a fair race so far. But no, no doubt in my mind, I don't expect that to be the case going into August when the primary rolls around, when they say, wait a minute, this guy's endorsed by uh, Rand Paul, General Michael Flynn, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, uh, you know, Paul Gosar, uh, you know, Thomas Massey, Andy Biggs, all these guys who are on board on the campaign. They know that that's somebody that's going to be an independent mind in D.C. 
and also be much more in touch with the new the, the principles of the new Republican Party and the new right. And so, um, no, I mean, they're definitely going to weigh in. It just hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, how do you uh, what's been your because it's it's interesting, right? Uh, the three kinds of elections that you've been involved at the local, the state and now the federal, um, uh, you know, the level of attention that that Republican primary voters have goes up the further up the chain you go in mm-hmm. terms of the the, the the federal consequence of race. Um, but at the same time, I feel like voters have gotten much more engaged at the same time mm-hmm. as well. What, what, how does the mood amongst the voters that you're talking to on a daily basis feel qualitatively different than it might have uh, in, in another era for a different seat for a different race? It's way it's way higher just from the nature of politics today, mm-hmm. but also being in the state that is arguably the most talked about at the state you know, in terms of state legislature mm-hmm. in the country. I mean, uh, you know, DeSantis has signed a bunch of my bills in law. I've worked with him on stuff. He is my governor. And so when I go to the door and I go to talk to people about the campaign, it's always through the prism of what's going on in Florida state politics. And state politics has taken an enormous amount of the public attention. Why? Because the issues that are most important right now, a lot of them are mm-hmm. state issues. Election integrity is mostly a state issue. Uh, critical race theory, mostly a state issue. The COVID tyranny mm-hmm. was dealt with mostly at the state level. And so, um, you know, people are looking at it through the, the floor, but it's higher than it's ever been. I mean, when I ran for state house in a primary in 2018, it was basically, you know, most of the voter interest engagement, other than maybe one or two issues, barely was, you know, how do you feel about Donald Trump and the America First agenda? Now, the level of detail in which they're following bills, what about this Disney bill? What are we seeing about critical race theory? And, you know, are we really going to get rid of that? Because at my job, I'm being told that I need to apologize for blah, blah, blah. The level of engagement on specific issues amongst the electorate is like literally 10 times higher than it was in 2018 mm-hmm. when I was running in a primary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. V- voters are smart. And if their elected officials are actually doing something, they'll pick up on it and they'll exactly. pay attention. I mean, so many people, especially in this town, think the voters are stupid and they always uh, yeah. frame it as like, oh, that's why that, you know, they like all these these show horse members of Congress or whatever. But it's like in a world where the leadership in the establishment in D.C. never wants to do anything, what else would they pay attention to other than the members that at least, yeah. you know, fight for them culturally on TV and 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 in the public square? Um, but I, I again, I've, I've always known voters to be much more sophisticated than that. And, uh, you know, biggest divide in D.C., I think, is the people who have utter contempt for the people who show up to a local Tea Party meeting versus the ones who actually kind of like them. <laughs> uh, and, and so you'll uh, I, th- I think be part of the latter and not part of the former if you if you get elected. Um, Anthony, where can people keep up with everything you're doing uh, and 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 stay up to date? Sure. So I'm on every social media platform at Anthony Sabatini. So I'm on, you know, Getter and Gab, Facebook and Twitter, everything in between Truth Social. I think I'm Truth Social on Vote Sabatini, I guess, because maybe I haven't found out how to get my handle yet. So I'm on there. And of course, my website is Sabatini for and then, of course, honestly, I'm probably the only candidate that does this or person in elected office, but I put my cell phone on every business card, every email, every mailer, everything. So if anybody wants to call me, it's 352-455-2928. Wow. And it's that big. was very bold. <laughs> very big. bold. But it, and it what's interesting is being as bold and vocal on so many issues as I am, it's crazy how a few like crazy leftists actually call. They just don't ever really call that much. I don't know why. They just... They'd rather yell at your staff than actually talk to you. So. Well, we'll wait to see how many of our fans start like texting you. <laughs> I hope they do. Um, yeah. yeah, call me. I will absolutely. And if I don't pick up, I'll call you right back. So, but no, it's a public cell phone, and I'll keep it that way even when I'm in the U.S. Congress. Wow, that's incredible. Well, Anthony, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come come talk to us here on Moment of Truth. Boy, this is an honor. Appreciate it. Love the show. Thanks. Uh-huh.
told you that guy was going to be great and super high energy. It was a good time. Um, thank you guys, as always, for listening all the way to the end. We're extremely grateful. Again, we have no idea why so many of you listen to the show. Uh, it has to be the guests and certainly not us. Um, please rate and review this podcast five stars. It really helps us in the rankings. Uh, a lot of you have been doing it. It's, it's, it's very helpful. Um, you can also see our ugly mugs uh, on YouTube uh, or Rumble uh, if you want to see the video version of this podcast. We have all these wonderful cameras taping and so it's uh it's certainly worth your while to check those out you can follow us on twitter facebook uh instagram uh getter uh, and all the all the other platforms at am moment org uh you can follow me personally as sharma us you can follow nick at nicholas solheim uh when he posts uh he po- he's mostly posting like ultrasounds these days um yeah. uh because he has a baby on the way um thank you guys for listening as always go to americanmoment.org and we'll uh see you next week Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Hey, 